0: introduce yourself and tell tell everybody a little bit about your writing? Okay, um, that's quite interesting. How do you introduce yourself?
1: Um, my name is Jan. I am originally from Ballymena, but I currently live in East Belfast and I've been there for about 10 years. Um, most important thing to know about me is I am Northern Ireland's leading expert on casualty and BBC medical dramas. Um, and in my spare time, I write mostly magic realism, but with a kind of bent increasingly towards the realist kind of angle um, and a lot of my work is focused on um,
0: kind of East Belfast and then the area that I grew up in in Bellawina Brilliant, and um, you have published two collections of short stories
1: Yeah, well one collection of short stories and then a strange microfiction
0: kind of hybrid collection but I guess it could roughly be called short stories as well And um, two novels um, would you like to talk about the two novels? As yeah, well um, I've got novels bookending my short story. <laughs> so my first
1: novel was, I think, two thousand and fourteen or fifteen. It's all become a blur in the last five years. Um, it's called Malcolm Orange Disappears, and it was set in Portland in Oregon, which is um, I had been living out there for about five years and had moved back to Northern Ireland and was desperately homesick for the Pacific Northwest. So it's about a little boy who grows up in a retirement home and begins to disappear. Um, And I wrote it mostly in a shopping centre in Ballymena. So I don't know, there's a a great quote, I think it is Anne Lamott who said, you should always write in boring places, you don't want
0: a room with a view, you want a room with no view at all. Um, Yeah, didn't John McGahern as well write just in front of a white wall, he refused to have anything to.
1: I think that's what I was going for when I sat in the coffee island in the tower centre. There wasn't a lot else to think about. Is that the
0: least inspiring place? Yeah.
1: (laughs) I've written in some pretty uninspiring places now, but the tower centre's up there. Um, So that was my first novel. And my second one is just out about three weeks ago, and it's called The Firestarters. And it is um, an unlikely magic realist take on loyalist culture in East Belfast. Um, so it kind of follows parade season June, July, and August in the East um, when there's a series of arson attacks and riots, um, but
0: also a siren who comes up the lagging to seduce a young man. And um, with your short stories and also with your novels, um, sometimes it feels like you gently introduce very disturbing topics <laughs> through the use of really beautiful imagery or like magical realism things, for example. You know um with the series of unfortunate children yeah throughout fire starters yeah these interspersed little sections that then bring us to something much more sort of yeah starving and
1: I guess I mean I've been thinking a lot about kind of you know everyone has a first language when it comes to speaking but I think we also have a first storytelling language and my first storytelling language because I grew up um, quite conservative Presbyterian was the King James Bible um, and the King James Bible is full of those kind of oh it's lovely poetic language but they've just cut someone's head off or you know the woman who fires the tent peg through her husband's head or they're these crazy bloody violent stories um, and I guess that that was how I learned to tell a story from listening to those um, and it's why writers like Flannery O'Connor is probably my biggest hero. She does that exceptionally, much better than I will ever be able to do. She lulls you into her sense of, oh, I think I know what this story is about. And then it suddenly goes very dark and twisted. And I just find that
0: fascinating. I don't know what's wrong with me, Emma. No, I keep doing it. It works really well. <laughs> but do you find that, are you drawn to... to one form in particular whether it's a short story or the novel for a certain idea or do you write short stories while you're writing the novels or how does that work in terms of writing both?
1: I think I think that the, the actual idea kind of dictates what it wants to be. Um, I've been working a wee bit recently in radio so a few ideas recently have declared themselves to be radio plays which is a, a new thing for me. Um, a lot of them are just little fleeting ideas and having the form of of the postcard story or microfiction has been really handy for almost not labouring too long over something that there's no mileage in so you can i'm never going to be a poet but i'm always jealous of poets and that they have this kind of small kind of easily used form that can deal with you know one idea whereas a, a short story to me is usually about five to seven thousand words and is a little bit more complex than that so I guess I usually know what what form an idea wants to be before I sit down to write it there's been a couple of short stories recently that have pushed themselves past the 12,000 word mark and have started to feel a little bit like you're losing the run of yourself here so they I may go back to them and start to think could that be a novel is there something
0: more in it And do you ever write novellas? Do you ever try and and go... I don't know.
1: I have a couple of 20,000 orders, which I'm not sure what they are. Um, And I I think as well, like I I was counting the other day, I think I have about 200 short stories now, and some of them are terrible, and they will never (laughs) see the light of day, but there are little bits within it that are ripe for plundering. So you might come back and go... Oh, I remember I wrote a section once in the the potato aisle of Tesco's and you go back and you lift that bit and put it somewhere else. Mm. Um, I can't not finish a story. So even if I start and I know it's not really going anywhere, if I don't get to the end and give it some sense of closure, it'll be sitting there drawing my attention away from what I want to work on next.
0: And can you always find something? If you if you think I've written about something or something, George, you, remember, you know, that... You want to go back and find? Can you always? Do you are you so um, familiar with your work that you can no. find exactly where that is, or do you have to? Because a of couple of times
1: people have quoted myself at me, and I've said, "Well, that's really good. You wrote that." So I have forgotten things it's that good I good read. That you liked it, yeah, and then <laughs> other times I've been like, "I think I wrote a scene about an old man in the sea." Oh no, that was Hemingway. He did that. <laughs> so there, there's been a few times like that where I've got other people's stuff mixed up. Um. So yeah. I'm going to sit down in the next couple of months, I've got a couple of month long residencies coming up which will give me some space and I'd actually like to kind of catalogue what I've done um, and go through everything on my computer and maybe go, you know, put them into kind of like an index of like this piece has cats in it and the future. And then
0: I would be able to kind of find them. That would be brilliant. It would be really interesting to be able to have that. It's like taking the thing of reorganising your bookshelf to just a whole other level not everybody can do. There's 656 postcard stories. And I can't remember
1: what I've written about. And they're really handy for reading at things or when people say we're doing an event on the theme of science or the future or Christmas. And I just started to think, wouldn't it be great if I could type into the search engine? Robots and then everything that I've written about robots would come up. So I might take some time and do that.
0: And it also would be an amazing gift to future researchers coming to look your <laughs> work and they have a pre-made <laughs> archive. That sounds ca- very like <laughs> overly, I don't know. My ego will get very big, Emma. Um, but when we um, put out the submissions for, uh, for the short stories for this collection, um, we decided not to impose a theme on it. and We decided we would um, wait to see the stories that we felt most drawn to. Did they present a theme to us? Mm. And very quickly that did happen. We realised that there was a general sense of sort of anxiety and loss of security. And really? In
1: 2019 <laughs> there was a sense of anxiety? Yeah.
0: And people responding to that, you know, obviously in very different ways, but... Um, very often with uh, a human representation of that figure. Mm. Um, is, that, is that kind of thing something you were aware of when you were writing The World Ending in Fire? or Yeah, I think I, a, a lot of what I've been th- writing
1: and thinking about recently has been about the urban working class environment, particularly terraced housing and how people live so closely on top of each other almost and how their lives impact onto each other and it's made me quite nosy so when I walk by spell Belfast I'm quite often looking into people's windows and sometimes you see quite odd things when you peer into people's windows and I think that's where the, the genesis of this idea came from I was thinking about what would be a really odd thing to see in someone's window and then I, I came to that and there's a sense in the story that this is a very private kind of anxiety the women's going through, but it's also on display because when you live that closely, your neighbours see through the window and you can see out as well. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, the sea lions at the zoo. Like, we think that we can only see them, but they can see us as well. Um, and that kind of blurring of the boundary between the private and the public or the interior and the exterior, is I'm really interested in that at the minute. Right. And did you write this story while you were writing Firestarters? Um or? yes, this one would have been so I mean the Firestarters I wrote about four years ago. So bizarrely it feels quite prescient now mm-hmm. but it was four years ago. Wow. Um it just it took quite a long time me editing it and then that was the book that I got signed to double Day on, so it went off to my agent and then it went off to different publishers and then they took two years over the edit and formatting of it so it has been knocking around for about four years so this this one was written in the middle of that and it's probably a I call them like cul-de-sac stories when you're writing a bigger piece and a wee idea jumps in that would would become a cul-de-sac in the novel and distract from the bigger plot but actually it stands alone as a short and um, I have my editor Alice, she has this really lovely way of editing me where when she comes across a cul-de-sac she writes in the margins This is lovely Jan, perhaps it could become a short story oh. and that just means chop it out, <laughs> but it's done in such a <laughs> nice way Yeah. Um, so this was a cul-de-sac too, the fire mm. starters You can tell I was thinking about fire a lot as well
0: Yeah, and it's... um. I was really happy reading fire started to see the world ending in fire is yeah. actually a sentence
1: in there <laughs> okay. it's also so. the world ending in fire is um, in the name of wendell berry's um collected essays um, and he has a fantastic essay called the world ending in fire as well and obviously there's biblical references there too which just keep cropping up quite a lot mm-hmm. um I think they they come into my work without even me noticing them. They sort of creep in, and then someone else points out, like somebody's recently pointed out in the Fire Starters. There's a real theme of kind of that Old Testament Abraham and Isaac sacrificial thing, where the father will sacrifice the son for the good of everyone. Yeah, I hadn't noticed that at all
0: when I was writing it,
1: but it is definitely
0: there. Yeah, I think it it really um. There's so much in it as well about that kind of fear as a parent of being the really awful influence in your child yes. <laughs> so, you know that and that that works you know, the fear of what's going to happen to your child but the fear that you've played a really yeah. strong role in that and um, I mean
1: I think I don't have any kids but I hear from a lot of parents there's a point that you get to where you go doesn't really matter what we do I could be the best parent in the world ever and in some way I will probably screw up my child
0: a bit yeah and that's slightly
1: terrifying absolutely
0: (laughs) I say to someone who does have kids sorry Emma but if it's inevitable you know yeah never (laughs) mind um would you like to read some of the yeah yeah yeah
1: World ending in fire. Lindsay's mother was no better than mine. She never left the living room. She slept there and didn't even shift when she needed to use the toilet. I saw this as laziness. I was not yet old enough to understand loss, the way it could sap the sense right out of a full grown woman. Laziness I called it, and something like slovenliness, though I was too young to have acquired this particular word. Still, I considered Lindsay's mother a sloppy creature, something like a pig or cow. I would never have said this to Lindsay. I was careful with her. I measured my words. My own mother had taught me how to spot the cracks in people, how easy it was to destroy a person, that it was equally easy to build people up. I did not need my mother to tell me that Lindsay was beginning to come apart. Your mam's like a mermaid, I said. Your mam's a dolphin. A seal, a jellyfish. I soon ran out of plausible creatures, but never once said, your mam's like a pig ploutering round in her own muck. Though this was what I thought every time I passed their window and caught a glimpse of Mrs Agnew sitting in her paddling pool. The least a person could do was leave the room to piss. Even dogs went outside, even properly trained cats. She has a special chair in the corner, Lindsay explained. You lift up the seat and there's a bowl for going in underneath. We were sitting on top of the wheelie bin when this revelation came out. All three of our backsides perched round the edge so the lid was beginning to bow in the middle. We were only up there for a better stare. Even from such a vantage point we couldn't see the pissing chair. I was glad of this, like when the camera goes to the roof during the scariest bits of a horror film. There were whole sections of the room lost to us, our vision restricted by the curtains and the unforgiving angle of Mrs Agnew's Venetian blinds. There were some things I didn't want to see. My nan's in a home, said Louise. She pisses in her chair too. Louise was trying to make Lindsay feel better. Back then, Louise was always trying to make Lindsay feel better. She'd tell her there'd been a mad woman, just like her ma'am, in last week's episode of Casualty or that she'd heard from her sister you could get extra benefits if your ma'am was mental or that the social would probably sort Mrs Agnew out soon God bless her, Louise Mackey was constantly trying She only ever made the situation worse Shut up Louise, I said Lindsay's ma'am isn't like your nan Lindsay's ma'am will get better soon I shouldered her sideways off the bin you're not to worry Lindsay I said I insisted that her mother was just pearly and lots of pearly people couldn't make it to the loo in time I said I was sure she would soon be on the mend I didn't mean a word of this I didn't understand why Lindsay's mother couldn't snap out of it and use the toilet like normal folk The news were a cut above the rest of us They'd had a second toilet built into their understairs cupboard as in all our stuck-together houses, this cupboard was located just a few steps from the living room, right beside the kitchen door. The luxury of this was not wasted on me. I'd often sat in front of our TV, holding the piss in my bladder till it went thin and slow, understanding that running upstairs to our own damp bathroom would cost me three full minutes of children's programmes. Our understairs cupboard was just a cupboard. Mama kept the hoover in there, hockey sticks umbrellas and the Christmas decorations all tangled up in an orange box. Occasionally a child, myself or more often one of my brothers, would find themselves temporarily incarcerated inside this cupboard, for giving cheek or refusing the last dry mouthful of boiled potatoes. When the subject came up, my dad always said that the Agnews hadn't got the good of their downstairs loo. Mr Agnew died just six weeks after it went in, Mrs. New's wee problem began the day after they buried him. My ma always said this wasn't a thing to be joking about, but I could see the smile nipping at the corners of her mouth. She'd flick a damp tea towel at Dad's backside or touch his neck gently like he was made of ornament china. She knew she was lucky to still have her man. We never asked Lindsay where her mother went at night. I presume she slept in the paddling pool. None of us had ever seen her out of the water. Though once Louise saw her standing up in it, the wetness licking round her lardy white shins like she was going for a paddle in her own front room. Louise told us this in the same way your woman tells the Bible story in Sunday school. She used fancy words. Her hands went darting about all over the place. She pitched her voice at a pleading angle like she was trying to convince us of something untrue. When the need to nap came over Mrs Agnew, she'd plump a cushion and slide it between the sofa and her grease damped head. Then she'd sleep for half an hour or so, mouth open and cocked towards the roof. Sometimes she'd leave the TV on. The people from neighbours or home and away stared out at her as if she was the thing worth watching, and they, for a change, the watching ones. It was easy to imagine her sleeping all night in a similar position. Somebody always drew the curtains early so Louise and I could only speculate about her overnight arrangements and what stopped her from drowning in her sleep. Louise thought there were angels looking out for her. She said God wouldn't be so cruel as to let anything more happen to that family. She was referring to Mr Agnew dying so suddenly, and one of the brothers who was in prison for drugs. I was more of a pragmatist. I said, ''You'd be hard-pushed to drown in six inches of water, even if you were asleep.'' I was not taking the drink into account. Later, I would wonder if Lindsay's mum heard me through an open window, if I'd put the idea in her head. The paddling pool was one of those cheap ones for children. It was barely deep enough to cover Mrs Agnew's belly and thighs. It did nothing to disguise the defeated hump of her breasts shriveling inside Decay's catalogue swimsuit. Floral print with a hold-your-tummy-in panel, like the one my ma kept for holidays. The pool was seaside blue, the sides had been inflated with blowing air and worn thin where she'd lent her weight and lent again and kept on leaning for almost three years. The bottom was made of thin blue rubber, like something you'd use to keep the rain off leaves. A series of cartoon fish followed each other nose to tail around the sides, never quite catching up with the fish in front. They were too jolly by far. The bright Caribbean shades clashed with the sadness of Mrs Agnew's wallpaper, her lamps and her ancient carpet with its fleur-de-lis print. The paddling pool was a damp island wedged between the sofa, the TV and the glass-topped coffee table which she kept where she kept her Bible and the TV remote. It was always the first thing you noticed when you were passing the house, even if you tried not to look in. We stopped to stare at her every day. We watched her through the window like a zoo animal on our way home from school. Lindsay never once said, don't. But when I looked at her, I could see she wasn't watching herself. Her eyes were looking through her mother to the hearth and the photographs rectangling across the mantelpiece. Weddings, babies, her ma and da smiling together. He punch-proud in his work uniform. You had to wonder if Mrs Agnew ever looked up. if she'd she'd forgotten about all those people grinning down at her. None of us could remember her smiling. A smile would have looked wrong on her sunken face, like teeth in the mouth of a very young child. One afternoon I was bored and sitting on our back doorstep, listening in on my parents, when the talk turned to Lindsay's ma'am. My dad said she wasn't all there anymore. The shock of losing Mr Agnew had tipped her over the edge. Over the edge of what exactly? I wondered if he meant the paddling pull. Then my ma said, Ach oh, no, Margaret's always been wild religious. She's a great one for the hellfire and brimstone. Sure wasn't she free pee before she married John. Doesn't surprise me one wee bit that she's ended up like this. Too much talk of hell and sin. I'd want it to go into them then. I had all sorts of questions about hell and sin and what on earth any of this had to do with paddling pulls." I didn't dare open my mouth. In those days it was considered impertinent for a child to listen in on adult conversations. It wasn't worth risking the wooden spoon. Eventually Lindsay explained everything to us. I have to say it made little sense. The Bible said the world was going to end in fire. It was all laid out in the book of Revelation, which is the very last book of the Bible and isn't really about Jesus at all. There'd be flames and smoke and volcanoes going off all over a spell Belfast. Lindsay had heard this from her mother. The world was definitely going to end in fire. It was the only half-sensible thing Mrs Agnew ever said after she bought the paddling pool. She said it over and over again like a sort of slogan. You could tell she liked the sound of it. When Lindsay's auntie Myrtle came over from Liverpool and asked if she wouldn't consider getting out of the pool and going back to her work in Boots, Mrs. Ignew just stared at her sister like the woman had horns. No, thank you, she said, and continued to sit there up to her belly button and at water. The world is going to end in fire, and I'm not for taking any risks. She was heart feared of getting burnt up, said Lindsay. She wouldn't have candles around the house. She wouldn't permit a fire to be lighted. Even the idea of fire terrified her. She'd made Lindsay take the electric fire down to the dump though it was only made of moulded plastic with a wee light flickering to create an effect. The water's to stop her burning up, explained Lindsay. She needn't have said this for we'd worked it out ourselves. I wanted to ask what would happen to the rest of us who didn't have paddling pools and whether the lava from the volcanoes wouldn't melt the pool's plastic and what about smoke inhalation which I'd seen in an advert for fire alarms but I didn't. There were only so many things Lindsay could carry at once. We never asked anything. Instead, we gathered outside Mrs Agnew's living room window. Sometimes we stood. Sometimes we perched on the wheelie bin lid. We watched her eat her dinner off a tray and doze and read the Bible, awkwardly, at shoulder height for fear of getting water on it. She looked like a whale I'd once seen on the proper news. The whale had washed up on an English beach and died. It was too fat and heavy for the sea to sweep it away. I didn't feel sorry for Lindsay's mother. She made a feeling inside me like when another person has been sick and the smell of it gets down the back of your throat and makes you gag. It was okay to look, but I didn't want to be in the same room as her. I saved all my sympathy for Lindsay who was only eight at the time, then nine and finally ten, far too young to take on so much responsibility. She didn't have a decent parent left and both her brother were feckless idiots or so my dad was head once. All mumbly like to mammy when he thought I was concentrating on the TV. Boom, went Lindsay's dad, burnt to a crisp with two other RUC officers in a bomb some bad bad men stuck under their car. Then, two days after the funeral, her mother's down in Woolworths buying a paddling pool and blowing it up and sitting in it for three whole years. It was hard not to see the two things related. The end of the world was only an excuse. I wanted to tell Lindsay that none of this was her fault. I imagined myself waiting on the till the two of us were alone. I put an arm round her shoulder, or maybe I'd keep my hands to myself. I'd say, listen Lindsay, I hope you know it's not your fault that your dad got blown up when your mum's gone mental. It's pretty shit that all this happened, but you're definitely not to blame. But I was eight at the time then nine, and finally ten, too young to find the proper words. All I could do was let Lindsay have half my Mars bar and always be it for stick in the mud and hope she'd see in these childish gestures something akin to sympathy. By the time I was old enough to be of any real use, Lindsay had moved to Glasgow. The paddling pool was long gone and it was not the sort of thing you could bring up casually on the rare occasions when she came home. Here, then, remember when your ma'am spent three years squatting in a kiddie's pool and you basically had to fend for yourself? That was a bit mad, so it was. I'm just down the road if you want to talk about it. I didn't know how to bring the paddling pull up. By then, we were not even close. When we were about nine, I asked my ma what was going to happen to Mrs Agnew. Drink bottles had appeared in her living room. They'd circled their way round the pool's edge like glassy soldiers standing guard. My mother laid her hand heavily upon my head as if she was measuring how tall I was. She said, You be nice to Lindsay now. This was the answer to a question I had not thought to ask. Another time when it was just me and Lindsay sitting on our garden wall, I asked if her mammy was going to be all right. I waited till after I had given her the first choice of ice pops. Whatever one you want, Lindsay, You can even have both if you fancy. I understood this to be a form of kindness. She chose the cola one. We both knew this was second best. There was a softness to Lindsay which never firmed up. I don't know, she says. The wrinkles in her skin won't come out. She's been in the water too long. I thought about this for most of the summer holidays. I wanted to know how long was too long. At what point your body quit trying to fix itself. As an experiment, I sunk my hand in a bucket of water and left it there for a whole afternoon. I read comics, I listened to the radio, I tried to ignore the numbness creeping slowly up my wrists. Afterwards, my hand was a raisin, but the wrinkles came out in less than an hour. Later, when she was dead, we all lined up to look at Mrs Agnew. I could see that her skin was flat again like a used paper bag smoothed out with a finger. Her mouth was drawn up at the corner, somewhere between a sleep and a smile. You wouldn't have known from looking at her that she'd been underwater all that time. My dad said the undertaker had done a stellar job. You wouldn't have known there was anything wrong with her at all. If you looked closer though, you could see the paddling pool had left a mark on the living room carpet. A big, damp circle spreading out all around the coffin. It was darker than the rest of the floor and perfectly circular and cold to the touch. It looked as if Lindsay's mother had leaked. Like she'd left an ugly stain behind. The Noalibis podcast is produced in a small back room in the Seamus Heaney Centre. Still Worlds Turning is edited by Emma Warnock and is published by Noalibis Press, with thanks to Ruby Colley for her music.